it's good to start with the time of, of worship, really, because, uh, and also with that, that link with Psalm 150 just there, it sort of ties last week into the beginning of this week. As Joe said, last week they finished with a time of celebration and praise. Um, today we're on our, our last of the series, which we called Nehemiah, It's Time to Rebuild. Um, and yes, we did in Perry Street have a time of celebration last week as well, as, as you did here, because that's how it was left in, in the chapters, what was it, 10 to 12, I think we looked at last week, quite a lot. We haven't got as many as this week to have a look at. This week we're looking at uh, faith without compromise. Yeah, it's about remaining faithful, of course, going forward, staying strong uh, and focused in, in the way that we live. Now, before Nehemiah uh, built the wall, it had been broken down for 161 years. I mean, sometimes you know, when you're living in the moment, you sort of forget that amount of time, don't you? 161 years, I mean, I'm not going to try and do the maths now, but you know, back in the 1800s, aren't you? And you think about what was happening in the 1800s, I mean, there have been a lot of generations that have gone by since. There have been previous attempts to, um, to try to rebuild it, but they failed. But then while Nehemiah was with them, it took 52 days. I mean, you wonder, why was it now 161 years? But 52 days. And that was despite the attempts to try and disrupt their building, to try and demoralise the people, you know, bringing into question their abilities uh, to be able to rebuild. And a new chapter in the life of the nation began. There was a new confidence, and with it there was a new commitment. Uh, and as we finished last week, the worship and dedication of the wall led to the people being willing to serve. You know, they rebuilt their lives, not just rebuilt the wall. And today we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 12 and then into chapter 13. I, I'm not going to read all of the verses. I'm just going to highlight uh, some of the key points to help us to understand uh, and to be able to apply it to ourselves today. So we're going to start off with... Uh, Verse 44 of chapter 12, I'm going to put it on the screen because I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. You'll understand why in a moment. So it says, On that day men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the offerings, the first part of the harvest and the tithes. So it wasn't just offerings, it was also the first part of the harvest and the tithes. Um, There was a lot of giving. They were responsible to collect from the fields outside the towns the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For all of the people of Judah took joy in the priests and Levites and their work. And then in verse 47 it says, So now in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel brought a daily supply of food for the singers, the gatekeepers and the Levites. The Levites in turn gave a portion of what they received to the priests, the descendants of Aaron. So the people were rejoicing in the priests, in the Levites and the singers, the, those who were leading worship. They've been led back to their calling to worship God and to live holy lives. And so they made plans to make sure that their leaders are properly paid and supported. Going back to chapter 10, uh, which you probably touched on last week, they've made vows to give tithes and contributions. Now, effectively, they were organising it. They were facilitating people to be able to give, to help them to be able to serve, putting in some structures. They were focused on how they were living out what they promised to do. If you go back, I'm not going to bring it up to look at it now, but in 1 Chronicles, 
when King David was growing old and when he was preparing to hand over to Solomon, there are four chapters where he gives instruction on how to bring order and structure into worship, into the priesthood, into the nation, to make sure that everything was in place so they had a continued commitment and service to God. Four chapters he did as he was passing on to to Solomon. By way of contrast, there's just one chapter giving instruction about military structures and how they should organise themselves in case of battle. His priorities were clear. He was going to put God first. And I know that our worship teams and our speakers, all those that put into our services, either they're up front or behind the scenes, they're all committed to bring excellence in all we do. Not to bring a performance, um, but to be authentic and to lead all of us closer to God through the worship, through the message and so on. And that's not just for an hour on a Sunday morning, it's to get us ready for the week ahead, to put our lives, uh, to prepare us every day of the week and every uh, hour of those days to be living for God. And so we plan and we're intentional about services, but we also want to leave space for the Holy Spirit to minister and to move among us. See, God's role was, uh, for Israel was for them to be a whole kingdom of priests, a light to the nations, to live differently, to draw others to God. It says in Exodus, it says, you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. And of course, as it says on the screen there, we have the same message in the New Testament. You're a chosen people, you're royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. That's being said to us. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. So the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. Nehemiah was making sure the spiritual life of the nation was on a firm footing as well. It was a great high point for the people of Israel as they focus on living for God. They're all called to contribute, just as we are. We might not be up front, we might not be that physically able, but we can all have God's Spirit living in us to prompt us to pray, to encourage us to reach out to neighbours or visitors, family or friends, even healthcare workers or grocery delivery drivers. There's always opportunities if we keep looking to God. We're all part of God's church today. We're all chosen people, chosen by God to show the light in the darkness, to bring hope in otherwise hopeless world and to bring joy to God's heart through our worship and through our service, whatever that looks like at whatever stage of life we're at. Now, in some ways, I wish Nehemiah finished at the end of chapter 12. Everyone's so passionate and engaged. They're looking forward to living how God intended. They've made a great start in doing that, to be in relationship with him and to be the nation he called them to be. It would have been nice to have had a happy ever after story. But there's another chapter. And on the flip side, maybe that's a good thing. It's a reminder to us that we can't realistically live 
on the mountaintop all of the time. Though, though we're redeemed, we still live in a fallen world. And we would have times when we waver. Everything that's happened in the first 12 chapters took place over a period of about a year. From the time Nehemiah prayed and prepared to return to Jerusalem, his journey time, his surveying, his planning, his leading, his rebuilding, as I said, that was only 52 days, but the whole lot of all that took about a year. And at the end of that time, the people made a solemn promise to God. And we'll look at that shortly again in a minute. Now, the order of chapter 13 isn't very clear. But we can get some idea. So, just going back briefly to chapter 2, it says, Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, I don't know how to say this, I always used to say Artaxerxes, but other people say Ataxerxes or something. Anyway, this king's reign, I was serving the king his wine. That's when Nehemiah approached the king and asked for permission to go to Jerusalem. And then it says in chapter 13, verse 6, it says, he returned to King Artaxerxes in the 32nd year of his reign, but then came back later to Jerusalem. So the event of chapter 13 happened more than 12 years after the walls had been rebuilt, it would appear. And Nehemiah is returning to a very different Jerusalem to the one that he left. The chapter opens by the people reading from the scriptures again. And that was probably on Nehemiah's return, although it's not completely clear. It says, On that same day, as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the passage was found that said no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God. For they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness. Instead, they hired Balaam to curse them, though our God turned the curse into a blessing. When this passage of the law was read, all those of foreign descent were immediately excluded from the assembly. So Ammon and Moab, those countries, had a long history of opposing God's people. Now the full story of Balaam, we're probably familiar with it, but it's back in, in Numbers, Numbers 22 to 24. But briefly, the Moabites hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. But when he tried, God turned it into a blessing. Now as a people, the Moabites and the Ammonites remained fundamentally opposed, totally against God's people. And that's why they weren't allowed to live amongst his people. It wasn't a form of racial discrimination. Foreigners could always become a part of Israel by conversion. Perhaps Ruth is the best example of a Moabitess who's in the family line of Jesus. God is always concerned about spiritual influence and it comes up again later in the chapter. But at this point, they take swift action to remove those who weren't following God and who would have had a negative influence on his people. And then the chapter continues. Sorry, it's a bit full of that one, but uh, I wanted to try and get it all on one side. It's a slide. It says, Eliashib the priest, now just mention that Eliashib the priest 
if you've got a good memory that goes back a few weeks ago, we, we talked about Eliashib, the high priest. This is a different Eliashib. Um, it's quite clear why it is in a moment, but Eliashib, the priest who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of God, and who was also a relative of Tobiah, remember that name, had converted a large storeroom, storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. The room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the temple and the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers as well as the offerings for the priests. When I arrived back in Jerusalem, so this would have been about 12 years after rebuilding the wall, I learned about Eliashib's evil deed. I became very upset and threw all of Tobias' belongings out of the room. And then I demanded that the rooms be purified. And I brought back the articles for God's temple, the grain offerings, and the frankincense. So at some point, this guy Eliashib had been appointed priest, and one of his duties was to look after the temple storeroom, where they kept everything for worship and everything to provide for the temple workers. But once Nehemiah had left, the resources were removed and the area was given over to Tobiah, basically as an apartment. Now I'm sure you remember Tobiah from a few chapters back as one of those who was undermining the rebuilding of the wall. He also tried to bring down Nehemiah. He told lies about Nehemiah to try and slur his reputation. Now he had an apartment in the temple. And yet, also, it says elsewhere, he's an Ammonite. Shouldn't have even been in the temple, let alone have an apartment. Somehow, he's been given a foothold in the heart of the Jewish community. He was living in the very place that had been built as God's dwelling place on earth. Whenever God sets things up, whenever he puts things in order, the enemy will try to disrupt and come against it. We've got to be on our guard. Sometimes it's quite obvious and and we're given uh, warnings in in Peter where it says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But other times it can be a lot more subtle. Perhaps petty jealousies that disrupt fellowship or spending too much time on things that aren't really that important. Let's make sure that we've got everything under God's order and it's committed to him. And that includes our personal affairs, our finances, our family relationships, as far as that lies with us, our ambitions, our dreams, our plans. Let's keep everything under God. What's Nehemiah do? He takes strong and decisive action to put things back in order. And what he does in turfing out Tobiah reminds me of when Jesus upset the tables of the moneylenders in the temple. Very similar. Straight in there. Sometimes there's no alternative. You have to take immediate and decisive action. He was quickly and unceremoniously evicted from the temple. And doubtless also from the nation being an Ammonite. And Nehemiah cleansed the temple and put things back to how they should be. He brought back the articles of worship and restarted the grain offerings. Now, that was bad, but Tobiah's apartment 
in the temple wasn't the only problem for Nehemiah to deal with. The people had compromised on all the commitments that they'd made back in chapter 10. They'd made promises. Those promises were to bring tithes to support the work in the temple, to keep the Sabbath holy, and not to intermarry with those who follow other religions. So they promised to put their lives in order and to keep them in order. But in just a few few years, things changed. It says in verse 10, I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food. So they and the singers who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to their fields. And so he takes action. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? Then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Judah began bringing their tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil to the temple storerooms. Again, very quickly, immediately he did that. I wonder what happened first. Had the people stopped bringing their offerings, and so Eliashib gave Tobiah the old storeroom as an apartment, because it was no longer used? Or, did he give Tobiah the room as an apartment, and so subsequently the offering stopped? We, we don't know which way round that happened. But we do know that they'd broken promises that they'd made just a few years earlier. They weren't taking care of God's house, the temple. And then the next one they, they broke was the Sabbath. And they started to compromise. The people had stopped keeping the Sabbath. How far had they fallen, if you like, from last week's days of celebrations when they just completed the war together? And it goes through to say, in those days... I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading on donkeys and bringing their wine, grapes, figs and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. And in Jerusalem at that, he was outraged. From the beginning of time, God has given us a Sabbath, even resting the seventh day himself. And when Jesus was on earth, he reminded the people that Sabbath was given for man. It's for our own good. I wonder what excuses they were deceiving themselves with. Perhaps they were saying, well, we're not actually working, we're letting people who don't follow God work for us. It's a bit of a hollow excuse, really. Sabbath isn't just for rest. It also shows our trust in God to provide. They've lost the spirit of the Sabbath. (coughs) Again, Nehemiah takes immediate and decisive action. I love this account. It says, Then I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem should be shut as darkness darkness fell every Friday evening, not to be opened till the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates so that no merchandise could be brought in on the Sabbath day. The merchants and tradesmen with a variety of wares camped outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I spoke sharply to them and said, 
what are you doing out here, camping around the wall? If you do this again, I'll arrest you. And that was the last time they came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves, to guard the gates in order to preserve the holiness of the Sabbath. Again, when you know it's wrong, you have to take action. Otherwise, you're at the start of compromising. <coughs> There's that little bit of chink in the armour. But I love that little bit in there in verse 20 where it says that the traders camped outside a few times. Did they think it might be temporary and that Nehemiah might relent or be pressured into allowing them back in? Did they think they might be able to sneak in? Nehemiah wasn't going to have any of it and so they left and the order was restored. <coughs> I think we need to take that as a reminder that we have to deal with things when we know they're wrong and not to allow ourselves to be compromised. We need to measure how we live against God's words, not the way of the world, and to remember that to God, there's no scale of wrong, there's no little bit of wrong. You know, what's wrong is wrong. If we're honest, we understand that, but sometimes we can try and bend. We all have to make our own decisions in the light of a New Testament about what we do or what we don't do on the Sabbath. I'm not going to try and go through that. That's for each of us to decide. May God help us and guide us in that. And another thing that people have gone back on was they promised not to intermarry with those who followed other religions. Now this isn't about ethnic origin. It's about being drawn away from God's ways of living. It says... About the same time I realised that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. This meant that their children had a deeper connection to the people uh, of pagan cultures than to the people of God. And because they couldn't speak the Hebrew language, they couldn't understand the scriptures. Quite simply, in Deuteronomy, very familiar, when referring to the commandments, it says, teach them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. And also in Proverbs, train a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. So he could understand what was happening. Israel was compromising, and because they were, then they were turning away from God. Nehemiah is so angry with the men of Israel, not with the foreign wives or the children, but with the men. And he confronts them. He curses them and even pulls out their hair. The Bible doesn't comment on Nehemiah's actions and we don't know what happened afterwards. It goes on, it says, And then Sanballat, who worked for Tobiah, in undermining the rebuilding, he pops up again. It says, one of the sons of Joeda, son of Eliashib, the high priest, so this is going back to the high priest, he'd married the daughter of Sanballat the Horonite. And so I banished him from my presence. What a mix-up. What were they thinking? Sanballat and Tobiah, the two main people that were going against them when they were rebuilding the wall. 
God's concern that we follow his ways, that we teach our children in his ways. We have to be diligent both in following God in our personal lives and in bringing instruction to future generations. We do that individually, but we do that as a church as well. This morning, Perry Street looks a little bit different to how it normally looks, because last week was HBC. Yeah, there were over a over hundred children there. Many of them don't have strong church connections. What a fantastic opportunity to teach the youngsters. So please be, you know, continuing to pray for them this week. Last Wednesday I was talking to a, a church member uh, who said to me, he saw a child chatting, uh, and his mum was chatting to another man They were standing by the, the medical centre in Stock Road. And the boy was dressed in a sheep onesie. <laughs> All he thought at the moment, at that particular moment, was, yeah, kids are kids, you know what they're like, you know. If he's decided he's going to wear that, he's going to wear that. But as he walked past them, he heard the lady saying, it's the last day of Holiday Bible Club at the Baptist Church. Great, isn't it? He wanted to dress up. You know, wanted to fit in. <laughs> That's not Wayne, by the way. <laughs> Yeah. <coughs> but it was great, wasn't it? That you wonder how much is sown in the seed of the children. What will he remember? What will his family remember? Or perhaps the other mum. Please do continue to pray for our families and our children. It's not just HBC either. This week and last week, there's Suffolk Camp, which Roger and Sally have run for about 10 years they're just in the process of, of handing over to somebody else to run it but that's been going I think 42 years somebody said um, and I think if I'm right it's where Roger and Sally met um, but uh, yeah they're teaching children and, and it's great my granddaughter Esme is there this week she went yesterday she just could not wait to go I hope it'll be the same when she comes back but she can't wait to go till next year this is her first time she's been away but back to Nehemiah. You know, king David was, was known as Israel's great king and his son Solomon as the wisest man who ever lived. But then Nehemiah reveals why he's so concerned. He says, wasn't this exactly what led to King Solomon of Israel's sin? I did, uh, into, uh, king Solomon of Israel into sin. There was no king from any nation who could compare to him and God loved him and made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? In his latter years, King Solomon followed God half-heartedly. He went through the motions of following God but he also followed the religions of his foreign wives. His heart wasn't holy for the Lord his God. Solomon was misled, and this led to the splitting up of Israel after his death. It led to the establishment of two nations, Israel and Judah, and then the time of the exiles. And of course, following their return from exile, Nehemiah had recently overseen the rebuilding of the wall. It had big consequences. Nehemiah had good reason to be concerned. Nehemiah is jealous for God. He wants the people of God to be wholehearted, not to compromise, to keep their promises 
and to be the light to the nations around them as God intended. We're facing and we continue to face challenges to what we believe. May God help us not to compromise our faith, not to compromise our belief in the word of God. Now there's an interesting connection also in Nehemiah 13. It's a connection with Jesus. When you actually look at the whole story of Nehemiah, (coughs) Nehemiah was released by the king he served to help the people of Israel and help them to rebuild and refocus. He then went back to King Artaxerxes for a while before returning to check on the state of his people. Sound familiar? You know, Jesus came from the Father to save his people. He died, rose again, and when he rose, he returned to the Father and sits at his right hand. He's there now, interceding for us, looking out for us. He's our advocate before the Father. But he will return. And what will he find? Will we be like the the ten virgins ready with their lamps or like the ones who've run out of oil who weren't fully prepared? Will we be like the servant who invested his master's money well or will we be like the one who hid it in the ground? Are we seeking to serve and represent Jesus with all we are and all we have and are we giving him our all? I wonder how long have you been a believer? When did we make our commitment to follow <coughs> Jesus? The Israelites made three promises and over time they broke them all because they compromised. Have we drifted? Have we compromised over the years? Is it time perhaps to reappraise, to realign? to repent, to be restored. The Israelites had lost their way and Nehemiah had been sent to call them back. Their distinctiveness to be a light to the nations had all but disappeared. But by the grace and power of God they were brought back, they were restored. How bright do we shine? I first wrote, how bright are we? (laughs) I thought, no, it's not quite right. How bright do we shine? How different are we to those around us? Are we a strong witness? And are we distinctive in how we live? Nehemiah only wanted to please God. Each time after he put things right, he said something fairly similar. After putting things right in the temple order, he prayed, Remember this good deed, O my God, and do not forget all that I have faithfully done to the temple of my God and his services. And after he saw in the Sabbath, remember the good deed also, O my God, have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. And then after sorting out the consequences of intermarriage, slightly different prayer, remember them, O God, O my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priests and Levites but it was clear he was separating himself from them and their ways. I guess you ask most people, if you haven't just done a series on Nehemiah, 
what Nehemiah is known for, he's best known for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But he also rebuilt the spiritual life of the nation twice. Firstly, when the wall was completed, and then when he returned later. And at the end of the chapter, at the end of the book, he says, remember this in my favour, O my God. He's really saying, I've done what you called me to do. I've done my best. I'll leave it with you, Lord. And that's all God asks of us. To listen to him, to act on his behalf, and to leave the rest with him. And then at the end, we will hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. May God give us that wisdom we need to make good decisions and without compromise. The commitments to live them out for him and the courage to be a light for the kingdom wherever we are. Amen.